Hey, good morning and welcome to the Charlie Paparelli Show. I am Charlie Paparelli. And um, this is a show for entrepreneurs about entrepreneurs. And what, I, what I've learned is that entrepreneurs, uh, the ones that I've talked to, have great ideas how to start companies and to build them into very valuable enterprises. And we're going to have an entrepreneur today who's going to talk about that and has some terrific long-term experience which is rare in today's environment. It seems like most of us are looking for those three years and out. But uh, if you don't want to miss one of these episodes, I recommend that you uh, go to subs- you subscribe at paparelli.com. Just go to paparelli.com and submit your email. You'll get not only alerted as to when these, co- these uh, interviews come out, but you'll also get my blog. So um, my guest today is Wendy Sally. And she is the founder of a retail store called Sally Opticians. Wendy is uh, this when this was a physical store, a storefront retailer, and I think she's extraordinary in the kind of business that she built. And as you can tell, I'm probably one of her customers and have been for 20 years. She recently sold her business after 34 years in the luxury, in, in the uh, high-end optical space. She sold it to a company called Luxury Optical Holdings, where she serves today as their chief merchant. In fact, she's going to be talking to us from New York. You heard it right when I said she's been in business for 34 years. That's very unusual to be able to continue to build a business, to continue to keep the the values of the business stable, and to keep a, a, a loyal customer base and a growing customer base going forward. And she's done that. I met Wendy after doing business with her store, and it's, it's currently located in Phipps Plaza in Atlanta. It's a, Phipps Plaza was developed as a high-end mall with high-end brands. Sally Opticians is a high-end optical retailer, and I see it in a sea of low-end optical retailers and also competition with optometry doctor's offices who pretty much do the same. In such a uh, hellishly crowded market, Wendy established this fantastic long-term profitable business. She also has the long-term employees as part of this success, which I really want to dig into. I wanted to interview because I want to interview Wendy because she always struck me as honest and capable and humble. She's kind and she's an entrepreneur who really understands her customers, me being one of them. So today's topic is starting and building a high-end brand. Welcome Wendy. I'm so glad that you're with me and you're going to be sharing with our entrepreneurs. Good morning. Nice to see you. And thank you for the introduction. That was beautiful. Well, you are beautiful and you have done a phenomenal job. I just can't get over it. I've been, I've been, from the moment that I met you, I wanted to talk to you. This is before I was doing any interviews like this. Okay. And uh, I just wanted to talk to you and find out more about you. I always found you to be so interesting. You know, you're one of those people when you meet, when I met you, you're instantly likable. You know, you're inviting in that way. It's sort of a gift from God in that regard. Thank you. So you're in business for 34 years. Why did... If you say it fast enough, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. (laughs) 
Yeah. I'm sure it wasn't all upside going through those 34 years. No. <laughs> but there's very rarely do you find people who have been in business that long. And after being in business that long, you know, I was just curious, how do you come to the decision that you're going to finally sell a business? You know, that's that's a hard one. Um, I don't know that I actually set out to sell at the moment that I did. Um, I had toyed with selling over the last five or six years because there were changes in the market, a lot of capital investment in our industry. And I had actually about five or six years ago gone through the motions of doing it just to test the waters. Uh, quite frankly, I wanted to see what they were looking for, how they were evaluating businesses of my kind. How and of you, course, how do you test? How do you say test the water? How do you? If I'm, I went, if I'm a full time business owner, I've been there for forever. How do I test the water? It's a it's a process I have I know nothing about. So, so I actually went through the sales process without the intention of selling. Oh. Okay. <laughs> and did the buyer I, I, know that? No. Okay. The buyer must have perceived it at some point. <laughs> when I said no. <laughs> <laughs> but what I did was I, I got insight into what they were looking for, how my business would be valued, what were the key metrics they were looking for. And, you know, our industry is very fractured because we have today more uh, insurance driven optical than ever before. I am not insurance driven and therefore I have an inherent value because of that. Uh, when you're in insurance driven in our end of the industry, you're somewhat dictated to as to what your pricing is, the kind of people you're going to see in your practice, what kind of product you're going to carry. And I, I turned my back on that many, many years ago as it was starting. And so there's not how long ago, many. How long, did, how long ago did the insurance optical start? Well, when I started, there was zero insurance. I would say, so, so that was 19, was that? Give me 34 years 87, ago. 87, 87. <laughs> Look at the face you make. I love it. Right? <laughs> I know. Um, so 1987, by the time we got to the mid-90s, insurance was starting to uh, kind of rear its ugly head, if you will. It was coming, it was coming, and everybody was like, this is what's coming, and you need to adjust accordingly. I went the exact opposite direction. What were the stores? Um, well, the stores it's very difficult from eighty-seven when you started. What, yeah. what did the stores? What did retail look like for optical in nineteen eighty-seven? Like who were the who were the who were the competitors? How were they positioned? Big box, big chains. If you think back to the. Um, Gosh, the Pearl Visions, there was Eye Masters, all kinds of things. And what they did is they had the massive stores and they had their own in-house lab where they manufactured lenses in, in the store and they had the big windows so you could see them making your glasses. And they were all 3,000 to 4,000 square feet space. Everything and they were all over. Um, they were in every mall. Yeah. Every, every mall. mall, yeah, every, I mean, all over. Not only every mall, but every strip mall. I remember them being everywhere. Yes. So it was point of presence was there really, point of presence, and I think, what was it, 
get your lenses and get your glasses in 24 hours or two hours or what was the what was that the became, it became one hour service one hour service that so was the you, when back then were you working in optical yes yeah you were Mm-hmm. So take me back. I know we're getting way all of the stuff, but yeah, take me back to how you kind of. Um, well, first of all, you got kind of a strange accent. So where where are you from? Where are you from originally? Where were you born? Can you hear me? Born, yeah, sorry, you froze for a moment. Uh, I was born in Liverpool, England, and uh, then when Home I of the I Beatles. Went- that's exactly right. Now, I hang on, though. I had elocution lessons to get rid of the accent. <laughs> what does the accent sound like when you say something that is a Liverpoolian? Uh, is that what it'd be called? Liverpoolian. Pudlian. Okay, there you go. Okay. Or the, or the, or the not-so-nice term, a scouser. <laughs> <laughs> we're kind of we're the, the brunt of jokes in the UK, you know? Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I came here right after college. Um, what did your, what did your mom and dad do growing up there? Liverpool, because Liverpool was basically a, uh, wasn't it a manufacturing area, heavy manufacturing with lots of pubs? Oh, you froze up on me. There you go. Yeah, I'm dead. You hear me? I'm sorry. Could you repeat that last question? Pardon me? Could you repeat that last question? Yeah, I was saying, so Liverpool, where you grew up, I was talking about your parents. You grew up probably in what, what was then considered just either middle class or lower middle class, kind of, uh, it was a manufacturing, blue collar kind of environment, if I remember Liverpool, you know. Yeah, uh, very much so. It, um, and, and a struggling city because it was so dependent on shipping and the docks. Yeah, uh, and and that all went away. Um, you know, I was a typical. My father's family moved from Ireland. Uh, my mother was. I had a Catholic father and a Protestant mother, and in in Liverpool, that didn't go down well. Um, oh, really? A little bit of a, a you know fractured city, kind of like Ireland was, where the the, the Protestants were separated from the Catholics. I did. So know a that. little bit of that. Okay. But, um, and a lot of areas that were never rebuilt uh, after the war, quite honestly. Uh, rows of houses that it, it wasn't unusual when I was young that half the row would still be derelict. I mean, you'd actually see it bombed out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. What years was that? What year does that get back to when you're a little girl? Well, I was born in 65, so some areas were still... That's 20 Uh, years after the war. Yeah. That's incredible. We -hmm. never think about that now, we see, because we go to London. Yeah, and and the industrial areas that got hit, uh, because the the shipping industry wasn't there anymore. So what were they going to do with these areas? It's actually fantastic to go back now and see uh, that the docks have all been rebuilt, not only for tourism, but for residential, but also they have um, movie studios there. In fact, Peaky Blinders is filmed there. Okay. So yeah. so what did your dad do for a living? Was he so the my, one from was he the one from Ireland or was it your mother? Yes. No, my father was from uh Southern Ireland. Okay. Um and he was a carpenter. So he left there because there was no work, probably in Ireland. 
He, well, he was a child when they came over. His father actually worked for the shipyards. Oh, I see. Um, and, and so he moved over, but extreme poverty, eight children, two bedroom house, um, you know, no, no bathroom. You know, all my relatives had what we would call outhouses. So this is, you grew up with eight, you had eight, you had seven siblings? My father. Oh, your father did. Okay, good. All right. Yeah, I only had two. Um, <laughs> but um, so, yeah, it was it was a extremely poor, you know, upbringing. Uh, and then we moved out of Liverpool when I was about two. And we went to a town called Wigan, which was another industrial town. But it was it was booming. Um, yeah. And, and they've lived in the northwest all their lives. And then my father moved to the United States um, in the early 80s, which is how I ended up coming over here. That's for a middle, for a carpenter, so a blue-collar worker like that, skilled blue-collar worker, yeah. He didn't, uh, that's very, isn't that very unusual for them to move from their yeah. community? So yes. What made, what I, made him, what made him, uh, did you go to college over there? Did you go, did you go to college at all? I don't know. I did. I went to college in England. Um, and I think, I think my father moved, my, my father always wanted something more than he had, you know, and, and, you know, America was seen as this, this big, you know, land of opportunity and everything in America is bigger and better. And, um, you know, I think that was the draw and he had the opportunity to come over with a construction company and he actually moved to Texas, uh, to Houston, and then Houston went through a slump and Atlanta was booming and he ended up moving to Atlanta. What year was that? 84, did you move, Did you move with him or did you stay in college? No, I was still in college. I didn't come over until 87. Where was your college located? In, was it in England? Yes, it was in the Mid Midlands in a, in a town called Crewe. Like, okay. so all, all the names of them have changed right now. It was mainly a teaching college. Um, I did uh, business uh, in college, but it was in a, a town called Crewe. Were you the first? Uh, were you the oldest? How many kids, how many uh, other brothers and sisters do you have? Say that again, I'm sorry. How many brothers and sisters do you have? I have one of each, and they both live in Atlanta. Are they are they uh, younger than you? Yes. So you the oldest. I'm the oldest. My sister's a year younger than me, and my brother is nine years younger than me. Oh my gosh! Okay. So the nine years younger. How about that? So when when you go to college, were you the first to go to college in your family? Yes, I was. Why did Why did that happen? Why didn't uh, being a female? You know, uh, two blue-collar workers. Your mom, did, she didn't work? Uh, mom worked. She was a printer. Uh, and back then, as soon as you got pregnant, you had to leave work. Uh, luckily, she managed to hide her pregnancy until she was about six months pregnant with me. But then as soon as she started to show, they made her work. And there was no structure in England to, to allow women to go back to work. And so she did not until my brother was probably about nine or ten. Oh, my gosh. So they, they made you leave work when you became pregnant? Yes. 
You know, it's funny. I just read a uh, I just read a book about. Um, I got interested in this book because I interviewed somebody who I found out as I'm interviewing his mother was the first White House female White House correspondent. This is during the '60s, and when she's on TV, they wouldn't they wouldn't put pregnant women on TV. Okay, so. She would they, – they made it so that when she was on TV, they would only show her from here up, okay? And she was um, – she on her last child, she actually went from the recording studio where she was, she was on TV to the hospital to have the baby to come back <laughs> – to come back literally seven days later so she wouldn't lose her – it wasn't an excuse for them to fire her. Gosh. Okay. So this is amazing that you're talking about what it was like government in England to say, oh, if you get pregnant, then we want you to stay home with your kids. That's it. So you're fired. That's it. There's no yeah. work for you. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I said, that was, what, 1965. So it was the same time. It changed a lot, but yes. It's so um, the same time. Yeah. There was no option. So why did you decide – who encouraged you or why did you decide to go to college? Uh, I think my mother always wanted me to have something that I could fall back on and, and be independent. And it's certainly the same way I've raised my daughters um, that, you know, it, it's great to have a family and have children, but you have to have a life that can support you outside of that. Why did, uh, your, mother, why did your mother think that way? Well, I think because she was probably... Uh, felt that a lot of her choices were taken away from her. Uh, and when she did re-enter the workforce, she had to retrain. Uh, well, and when she went so back she in... She liked to work. She liked to make money. She, she was probably, a, she probably, in her heart, she was very ambitious. When she went back, uh, within five years, she was running the print department at Lancashire University. <laughs> she just went in and took over, yes. Sounds like you've got a little bit of her DNA. That's what it sounds Probably. like. Was your father somebody who encouraged you to go to school? Or do you remember the conversation between mom and dad? And dad was like, why does she need to do that? She I should think, just become a yeah. name it, right? I, look, I think my mom was certainly the biggest push. I grew up in an era where my father would say things like, little girls should be seen and not heard. Um, and I was always, no. <laughs> That's not going to happen. You were seen and, and in so her. There's a little bit of a rebel maybe in that respect. Yeah. So, so I, decided, I always knew I had, there had to be something more, right? So then here's the thing that happens. So you go to college. You wind up going to a teacher's college. Everybody, the majority of the people there, which if it's a teacher's college, a lot of times is mostly female back then. Probably yeah. was. I'm making assumptions here. Tell me if I'm wrong. And so uh, why would you not just mainstream say, well, I guess that's you go to school, you become a teacher at college and you come out and you're a teacher. I have a job. Why not that? What happened? Well, I thought about it and then I started looking at the opportunities for teachers in, in England and the rate of pay and, and what I'd be doing for the rest of my life. And I just said, no. You know, I have to do something more. I didn't know what more was or, or what I wanted. It wasn't a particularly burning ambition for me to be an, a teacher. It was kind of like, okay, I'll go there. Because uh, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. 
And so I ended up switching and I did a business course because I did not know what I wanted to do. Did you know, see, one of the things that happened to me is I grew up in a household of blue collar, a blue collar household. And so all of the talk around the dinner table is about hourly wages or, you know, the, the, the work itself, you know. Um, but there isn't any talk about business. So when I went to college and somebody said, you should take business, I didn't understand, even though I worked for businesses, you know, because I had a work through, I didn't didn't think of business. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't have any any uh, sort of growing up examples of that, like your daughters did. Yeah. You know, while they were growing up, I mean, business talk was just part of their life, you know? You didn't have any of that. So that's why I would say, why business while you're in college? Because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was like, I got to do something. Let me do this. In fact, I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, I remember sitting in an accounting class and uh, I I hated, I hated the accounts classes. And I remember my teacher standing next to me saying, Miss Brennan, you are going to have to grasp this concept. And I remember thinking to myself, I will never need this. (laughs) And then, you know, how many years later, it's a daily thing. Uh, So I'm sure he's laughing at me. So when you uh, were sitting there, I never need this. I don't like what I'm doing. Why stick with it? Why not say, I guess I'll go back to teaching? Because some young people, that's exactly the reaction they would have. Because you understood teaching. Mm-hmm. Because the example's right in front of you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, business doesn't really send you out into the world prepared or trained to do anything. I think I always realized that I maybe had a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, I've, I've worked since I was 14 years old huh. in one way or another. Um, I've worked in the local sweet shops in England on the weekend. Um, you know, I've worked in bars. I've done, I, I did all kinds of part-time jobs while I was going through school and college. And, and I just, I don't know, it may be an, an inner drive that I just knew something would be coming at some point, but never really knew what it was. And I just thought this would give me a good basis for whatever I decide to do. Did you, did you have anybody in college that provided you with encouragement in business as opposed to, you know, to continue to build, to to continue to pursue a business degree versus, you know, teaching or some other degree? No. Didn't have any. So you're on your own with this. And your mother's just kind of behind you saying, yeah, just continue to finish school. And then your family leaves you. Well, my mother stayed in England. My parents were separated. My father went to the UK. My mother still lives in England. Uh, So I I had the opportunity to go to America. I can't imagine what my mother felt now that I have daughters. When your daughter comes to you at 21 and says, Mom, I'm moving to America. Yeah, it's like, what? I'll tell you what. we uh, We just had that experience with my third with my third child who's my first son and uh they decided here we had we have uh he has we have two daughters who are married and live in atlanta and we have grandchildren with those daughters right we have uh, a younger son who's now he's going to be 29 in a couple of days okay 
and he lives here and he works for a technology company. And then we have this son, David, who is married, who just announced that they're pregnant. Okay. And, uh, and also a couple of weeks later announced that they decided they're going to live in London. And it was, it, you're right. I know exactly how your mother felt in that it's, uh, and what I got to is you have this expectation of how your family's going to be around and how it's all going to work. And it's just dashed. It's just dashed. How can my little Wendy leave me? <laughs> and it's, it take it almost personal, but it, even though you have high hopes for Wendy, as I have high hopes for David, I mean, it's his family, not mine. He needs to do what's best for him, but it did that. It's dashed expectations and it's hard to deal with. So I know how well, your mom felt. That's the only reason I bring up that story. Yeah, and I think think about it that we didn't really um, we didn't have FaceTime back then. Uh, there was no way to be in contact. Uh, telephones were extremely expensive. Yeah. Um, to talk, and, and we, so we used to have to ration our time on the phone. And so we'd have uh, every Saturday morning we'd have twenty minutes that that we would talk that wouldn't cost either one of us an arm and a leg. Um, you know, and, and, you remember and so that, how much it cost for that call? I'm sure you do. I can't remember, but it was not cheap. I remember sitting a clock in front of me. Yeah, I remember <laughs> counting those things. They were like three dollars a minute or four dollars a minute. Like you know, you sit there and you now we don't. You now you're thinking it's nothing, right? I mean, I call oh, my yeah. son, and it's the same as calling him if he was in Marietta. I mean, it doesn't matter. That's exactly right. That's funny yeah. how those things. So, what did you? So, you graduate from college with a degree in just business. Is that what it yeah. was? Yeah, uh, it was business and uh, actually purchasing. Purchasing. Okay. Did you work for? No did you idea. do any kind of internship or anything that would be akin to an, what we'd call an internship today? For while you were in college, you know, that gave you a little bit of hands-on experience in your studies? You know, they never really had anything substantial set up to support us in that. As part of the course, we had to find uh, a business that would allow us during our summer to examine their business, look at their books, that kind of thing. And it was on us to find it. Okay. Uh, luckily, there was a guy in the village that uh, that I lived in that I used to work part-time in his fish and chip shop. <laughs> and I asked him if, you know, I'd still keep working in the fish and chip shop, but would he allow me to help him uh, do some of his, you know, business running the business and give me some insight into his bookkeeping and how he managed his employees and that kind of thing. And he was nice enough to do it. Um, and, and so that's that's kind of how it started. And, and I, I remember thinking, this is pretty cool, right? Did you, did you also think... You know, that accounting course really did come in, come in handy. <laughs> I, started to, I started to get an inkling of what my teacher was talking about. <laughs> I paid a lot more attention after that. <laughs> so your thoughts, though, I, I interrupted your thought of, this is pretty good. This is interesting. What did? So that's the first time you looked inside a business. Could you uh, expand on that a bit? 
So say that again, Charlie. I'm sorry. I said this is the first time that you had a look inside a business as opposed to just working for a business, right? You weren't waiting. You weren't counting the number of hours times the number of pounds per hour they said they were paying you to come to figure out what you were going to get. You looked inside a business. Tell me what that experience was like. How it affected you, you see? Yeah, I, I, you know, what I kind of came away with was wondering why some of the the decisions he made, why he'd made them. Um, Because I'd worked part time for this gentleman for about two and a half years. And so, you know, I had seen the running of the store um, um, and, and just having a little bit of a window into the back of it. Uh, it, it, it tied everything together. And so, you know, when, when he started breaking down the expenses, I mean, something as silly as when we would serve someone a portion of fish and chips, yeah. we had to use a particular scoop to put the chips in because that meant you weren't over serving someone with chips. Right. And, um, I just remember thinking, you know, when he started with the math about how much his potatoes cost and and all of this, and I was like, I get it, I get it, right? Uh. Like because there's such a small margin in it, and he, and they're hiring kids essentially, right? Yeah. Who and so he's got this business model, and he's saying no. So you've got to measure this, and you've got to do this, and then even. Um, not overcooking food so it's not sitting there too long because if business was slow that day, he'd have all this wasted food. I, I just found it intriguing. And in fact, my first job after college was with a food company. I felt that's where my comfort level was. So I actually went in as a trainee manager. It was a bakery company that also operated a cafeteria. How did you, I'm going to get into that for just a second, but how did you, uh, what did you learn about being in employees and looking back, having employed people? What did you learn from those years as you were working your way through high school and college? You know, you were working in those jobs and you get exposed to, that's, that's sort of like a, the first time we're competitive in the marketplace, you know? What did you What did you observe and you what know, did you take away? You know, it's sort of like we watch our parents and say, "Well, if I have kids, I'll never do that," you know, <laughs> or "I will do that." You know, I think that happens. I'm just thinking about it. it. Happens as being an employee. We watch other people. You do, and I, I always was very lucky in that I had a great work ethic. I was always the hardest working. I was always on time. Uh-huh. Um, I saw the employees who were trying to get paid but not work. And yeah. I always, I could, I could see them and recognize them very, very quickly. Um, and I also working for, I remember working in a pub and the owners of the pub would not really work very much. They just liked the social aspect of it. So they were always on the other side of the bar <laughs> drinking. And, and part of me was like, wow, that's a really good job. Maybe I'll own a pub one day. Um, looks like then, fun, right? You're just a big like party fun, all day. Right? That's it. Just yeah. a big party. But I could also see the, I, I could also see the pitfalls of it in that they didn't have their finger on the pulse of what was going on. 
uh, and some other places I'd worked. Like, what did that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? They didn't have their finger on the plug. Well, too many things were sliding. Um, The service wasn't as good. Um, If they were offering food offerings, the food wasn't as good. They just weren't as on top of running the business as they should have been. And uh, I had I had worked for some other operators that I thought, wow, they really get it. They were a little more pedantic. They were on top of you more. Uh, and maybe there was some something in the middle, right? Yeah. So you're not micromanaged. Those were truly successful businesses. And if I look back now, the longevity of those businesses, um, the more successful ones were the ones that one either had – a fabulous because in 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 owning pubs typically they have a fabulous run for five years and then they retire because it's a tough business um and some of them didn't even last a year to two years mm-hmm. so you know it you was were just- drawn to you were drawn to and respected i should say the uh the the detail operators the real the, the people like you said i love that story of the fish and chips where the guy knew the cost of his potatoes. In other words, he was down into the business basics, you know, so he understood his cost of goods sold, if you will, right? You know, so that he wasn't just trying to be, you know, he wanted to give a fair something, fair fish and chips for a fair price, but he needed to make a profit doing it. Yes. Right? And you learn that at a very early age. Yeah. Yeah. That that was really my first kind of insight into it. And, and and I don't know that I absorbed it to the point where I was like, oh, my gosh, this is going to, you know, if I have a business, this is how I'm going to run it. But it was just all little stepping stones, if you will, that kind of added up. So the, by the time I did get my own business, I had a lot of things that I could pull from. I'd had a lot of exposure between the age of 14 and 21. Yeah, but look what happened. It's, I think it's interesting that uh, we walk away with a view from our business, from our work, okay? And we either walk away with the view of an employee. It's all about me. What kind of wages am I getting? You know, is it fair compared to where else I could work? You know, that kind of a thing, right? That's that, it's almost a blue-collar kind of a mentality, if you will. Uh, but I'll call it the employee mentality, or you walk away with the business person's mentality. How does this business work? What makes it go? Why is that employee, you know, um, you know, not showing up for work and not getting fired? Oh, they did get fired. <laughs> That's a good thing, right? You know, because you're thinking like an employer, not an employee, okay? I had uh, somebody come to me who... Uh, was one of my one of my um, son's friends, and here he is working in a big box retail store, and he was complaining to me that he works harder than everybody else, and it's just not fair that they get paid what he gets paid. And now, just from this conversation, I'm realizing, of course, he has an employee view, not a business view, knowing, mm-hmm. yeah, he needs to keep doing that because he's going to go far beyond who those people are in the position that he's in now. He's going to advance. But he never changed that attitude. He quit college and wound up being a blue-collar worker. It's just interesting. So, you know, you say, why did I get that view and the other people didn't? But you did. So you graduate college and then where do you, uh, where do you, 
how do you, you know, why didn't you just get a, a good job with some employers in the greater UK? Okay. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, back then, uh, um, unemployment was really high in England. What year was that? Um, that would have been 80, 85-ish. Okay. All right. And, you know, so I came out and, and there were a lot of management training programs then, which we were encouraged to go into. One of the top management training programs, by the way, was McDonald's. Uh, but I just was like, no, I can't do McDonald's, even though I interviewed with them. And they Why would take say me. that. Yeah, I, I couldn't do it. I was just like, <laughs> I don't want to fry f- f- chips, you know, and I don't really want enough in the fish and chip shop. <laughs> no burgers. I need something else. Um, I didn't want to fry so, chips at scale, right? <laughs> no more chips. You know, you go home and you smell of it. I'd already smelled of it for three years. I'm done. Um, I, I wasn't afraid of the work or the hard work or, you know, because um, I ended well, up. a funny in a, in story once. I had somebody who was like, going to sell me a hamburger, a franchise, and uh, there was a great opportunity. I can't even remember the name of it, but they took me to it during lunchtime. And I went, I went home and I actually threw up. I got sick. <laughs> I was in the kitchen for like 30 minutes and I said, oh, my God. <laughs> So I know. I love that. I didn't want to smell like it anymore. I smelled like it for three years. But go ahead. It's uh, so it's not McDonald's. You know, it's one of those so things, you, you can't get it out of your hair. You can't get it out of your clothes. <laughs> go ahead. So it's not McDonald's. What do you do? So I went to work for a uh, company called Stanton's, which was a bakery company. Uh, I went in as an assistant manager. In England? Uh, in England. Okay. I was actually living in a town called Shrewsbury, which is on the Welsh border. Okay. Um, not far from where I, I graduated college. And um, it, I loved that's a, it. That's I a worse it. accent than the Liverpudians. Oh, <laughs> it's a different one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Plus, I had to work with Welsh people who were not particularly enamored with the British. So there was another challenge. (laughs) Um, So it was mostly women. Mm -hmm. In fact, it was all women. And um, so I started as the assistant manager and the area manager came to me very quickly and said, you know, what are your goals? And so I was polite in saying, I love this company and I'd love to be a manager one day. Really didn't think this would be anywhere that I would want to stay long term. What was the first what, what was the actual first job? What was the and actual so, first job? What was the actual first job out of college? Did you hear me? You didn't hear out me. of college? Yeah, what was that first job? What were you actually doing? And it's very unusual. Doing, it was an all-female business. So as an assistant manager, I had to come in early in the morning. The front of the store was a retail bakery. So oh, we would get okay. the deliveries from the, the truck, and we would stock the window. Okay. And then we would prepare food for the cafeteria, sandwiches, that kind of thing. And then the administrative part of it was the reports at the end of the day, uh, how many cream cakes we dropped on the floor, you know, that we couldn't sell, that kind of thing. Um, And then the staffing, the the scheduling 
you know. But it was a female, so it was a female retail business. Did it have multiple stores? They had, they yeah, they had probably 150 locations. Okay, and so you were working retail. This was your introduction to retail, in effect. There yeah, wasn't the I restaurant mean, I, business. You know, I, I, you're actually selling. You were selling baked products, okay, and probably coffee and things, right? But it was a retail business. Yeah. yeah okay. So then, what happened? I think the, the biggest thing I learned from that was how to deal with staff. Quite honestly, because <laughs> they had a lot of part-time staff, and and again, all women. And I think sometimes women are we're our own worst enemy. Uh-huh. And um, you know, they they weren't invested. A lot of these were you know part-time workers, and said they were moms. And they're certainly you know the business doesn't come first. So it was constant call outs, or I can't come in today because my child is sick. And so it was constantly juggling. Uh, so that was a, that was a big, a big learning curve. What was the big What was the big learning from all of that? Because that um, sounds like that that sounds like you're running a McDonald's, you know, store. Yeah. I mean, that is the same thing they have. You know, it's like I don't feel like working today. And if you say, well. If you don't come in, you're fired. They're like, that's okay. I'll get something else. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, there's no, there's just, you don't have any power in effect over this. So- no, you don't. Uh, the, the challenge was to find full-time workers that were more invested. Uh, and if we were going to stay with so many part-time workers because of whatever labor laws or benefits, then you had to have ample on your roster that you could fill in the slots. Because you just, you could not function without it. And I ended up, I think that was my first exposure to, you know, a 50, 55 hour week. How did you, how did you? I I was the coverage. Yeah, you were the coverage, (laughs) right. How did you, so you finally came to a ratio that said, if I need three part-time workers, I need, I need uh, 30 people in the pool or whatever the number might be. I'm sure you had a ratio and then it worked. But what about how did what did you learn about hiring full time workers in a retail business? You know that would would stick around. I mean, I'm sure you did. You hired some that didn't stick around, and then you finally start learning. You know what yeah. is it that you're offering them that makes it attractive enough for them to stay? Yeah, and and you know this look. This was at a time when England was certainly struggling, and so there were a lot of people out there that just needed a job. Oh. Not that this was going to be their job for the rest of their life, but they had to have a job. In a way, you kind of benefited from that because you you probably had access to people that would be doing something else if unemployment wasn't so high. Um, but that was never going to be long term. As the as the economy picked up, you were going to lose these people. Uh, and then we started a training program for people coming straight out of high school. And how can we get those people on and train them so that we're actually giving them an education and not just retail? Re- retail is tough, and if you if you don't have the right personality for it, it's a challenge. And so, you know, you have to marry all these parts. You actually have to hire someone that actually likes people. And I know that sounds silly, but if you don't like people and engaging with people, it is not the right job for you. That makes Um, a lot of sense. And it seems obvious when you say it. (laughs) Right? (laughs) 
I so, so you know, that, that was, it was a, a challenge. It was, um, <laughs> it, you know, and, and I don't know that the company quite honestly even looked at it that way, the company as a whole. Uh, I think they were just so used to pushing part-time workers through that, you know, we just keep going. We just keep going. We just keep pulling so this more was in. Your, this training and all that, was this your idea? Uh, in my store, yes. Yeah. Wow. So when, when you came to that idea, you said, if I can catch them early enough, then I can train them into this. And I bet you those people did, even after you left, they stuck around. A lot of those people that you brought in. Yeah, it would be nice to think they did. I mean, or at least got a start in something, yeah. you know, propel right. them to something else. Yeah, that would that would be my hopes. You must have also been somebody. What do you think if those employees that were hired by you, what, did you, what do you think that they said about Wendy back then? This is Wendy, little Wendy at 22, 24 years old, right? Well, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, I was so much younger than anybody else. <laughs> right. That's what always um, happens, right? And that was a challenge, quite honestly. Um, you know, because some of these people had worked in different environments and they're like, oh, what does she know? Blah, 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 blah. And, and there's always a fine balance with saying, no, I, I don't know it all, but I, I realize that I need to help us all mm-hmm. here and I've got an idea. And what do you think about this? That way, when I say to, you know, the lady that's had to work the last five weekends in a row because we've had no coverage, you know, if we do this, isn't this going to make your life easier? So you're not having to work quite as much. We're not as dependent upon you. And I see. So I think if you can appeal to everything that each person is looking to achieve, they're more willing to work with you through this. Well, that means that you really took an interest in people and who they were in their lives, you know, and then you engage them in the business knowing this about them to see how it all fit for them and fit for the business. You know, I don't know if I thought about it that way back then. (laughs) That's what you've done. That's what you did. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. That's almost like a uh, that's like a God given sort of skill, you know. I mean, it just was part of you. That's how you were interested in people. Like you made a comment, only hire people that are really interested in people. You said that sounds stupid, but that's exactly what it is. But you were that kind of person. So if you're interested in people, you're asking about them and learning about them and their lives. And if you're a good business person. You're going to build that bridge saying, hey, this is what's going on in the business. This is what's going on. I know this is going on in your life. How does this work together? That's where you made a that's a that's part of your success. And it started back in Stanton's in England. Yeah. Yeah. I was not there very long. Um, you know, I, I kind of I think I probably became a little disillusioned with the corporate structure there. Uh. Um, and and what they how little support they were willing to give uh, to new initiatives and uh, what support were you looking for? This is an interesting thing too. So this this impacts entrepreneurs who are working within companies. What disillusioned you that kind of made you said you know this isn't going to work long term for me? Uh, they weren't willing to look at the personnel problems the way they should have. And they were quite happy. But if you were salaried, 
obviously you're not you're only getting paid so much money uh, it became very evident that the salaried people were working way beyond the hours that they should uh, and and that didn't work life balance right which I don't think I've ever had uh, but when you have employees you have to consider it and and I don't think they were invested in that and so they were quite happy for me to be there three hours every morning before store opening yeah. um, you know and if I if I needed time off it was a struggle so as they were just you felt at some point they're just taking advantage of you, you yes know? it was interesting I just uh, just to let you know that this continues on I had a friend of mine who's uh, got a son-in-law who's working in the car rental business. This was during this pandemic thing. The guy was literally working 85 hours a week, 85 hours a week. He was getting up at four in the morning and getting home at 10 at night kind of stuff, you know, and he has a family. And uh, I talked to the guy to see if I could help him out. And I said, well, did you bring this up to corporate? And uh, he's he's this is regional manager level kind of or district manager level. So he's getting paid good money. But uh, he said, yeah, he said, I talked to him and they just said, you know, yeah, we're all kind of working hard. I said, you need to work hard, too. And that was it. And I, I just so it still happens that way, you know. Yeah. So that's something once you have that experience, you take it with you. So how did you wind up from there? Was your next step America? It was. How did you do that? So I was able to come over. My father was still there, so I had everything set up for me to walk into. My sister had already moved over. Oh, uh, okay. Um, and so when I came, then it's like, what am I going to do with myself? Well, why didn't you just find another job in England? Why did you decide I needed to really go to the United States? I just I had been over to visit, uh. Uh, and he was living in Atlanta at that time. And uh, you know, look, let's let's be real. It, England is cold and wet and you come to Atlanta and it's like being on holiday all the time. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you know, you've got swimming pools. It's kind of like that. Remember so the why did my son and daughter-in-law move to England? Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You're the, sing- you're the second Englishman who told, <laughs> who told them that. Okay, but go ahead. <laughs> but it was, it was like um, – <laughs> It was just a totally different way of life. And I was like, you know, I, I'm young enough. I need to try it. Right? Okay. If I don't try it now, you know, uh, you know, by the time I get married and start having kids and all that stuff, I'll never have the opportunity. So I'm like, I, I'm just going to do it. And uh, I loved it. I loved Atlanta. Of course, it's a lot different than what it is now. Um, it, it, was, it was just fantastic. And so I had to find a job. Did you move that, in? T- did your father live in town, or did he live in the suburbs? Uh, he lived in Decatur. In Decatur, okay, so close to downtown. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, and you moved in with him. I did. I moved in yeah. with him uh, initially. Uh, I think I stayed with him for about nine months. What about um, all the visa, green card, all that kind of stuff? Were you able to get employment? Yeah. Um, He had, I can't remember all the details of it, but he had something set up through his company. And maybe I was still listed as, I don't know if I was still listed as a dependent or, I can't remember. Oh, okay. Um, But 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 you were able to work. Yeah, we ended up with a work permit um, because I didn't become a citizen. And, oh gosh, 
till probably 20 years later. I'd already had kids and stuff. Um, but yeah, we had a green card. So a permit and then a, a green card, if I remember correctly. So what do you do for um, your first job now you're in Decatur? So I started interviewing and um, I interviewed for an ear, nose and throat doctor as a receptionist because they loved the way my voice sounded. <laughs> and Use thought, all your okay. assets. Use all your assets. I love right? it. <laughs> I, said, I can do this. And so they sat me at this desk uh, and there was this big uh, board, you know, that you press different buttons for different extensions and uh, no, I think I lasted about three days. First of all, I kept getting the buttons wrong, but um, <laughs> I was just like, I cannot answer phones uh, for a long period of time. I can do this temporarily. And then um, my father's um, fiance was working for a dentist in Peachtree Center. Okay. And she uh, knew of an optician downstairs who was looking for help. And she said, why don't you go and, and talk to them? And the dentist said, yeah, he's a good guy. Go talk to him. And so I went to talk to him, and that's the job that I ended up staying in. Was it, was it optician being retail, or was it? Yes. He was in retail. Okay. Retail. Mm -hmm. And what was the job? Uh, I was now an apprentice optician. Okay. So in Georgia, you can apprentice or you can go to school for two years. And so I signed up for the apprenticeship program. And tell and me, just so people know, what is an optician? What is an optician? What's the job of an optician? So we fill prescriptions. Okay. Um, so the same as you would take a medical prescription to a pharmacist, uh, you would bring us an eyeglass prescription or a contact lens prescription, and we fill it. I got it. Okay. So that's a certified optician is necessary for that, to do that function. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And in Georgia, it's a licensed position, so you have to be licensed by the state. I got it. Okay. So you okay. start as an apprentice. Yeah. And um, I loved it. And the guy that I was working for had zero business acumen. And so before I knew it, I'm doing all his bookkeeping. Was he a single um, store? Single store. Okay. So he owned the store. Okay. Yeah. I'm doing all his bookkeeping. I'm doing all his, I had to learn all the tax paperwork, you know, for the um, 940s, 941s. He had not been filing them, period. Whoa. And so I had to, jail. I shouldn't say that, right? But yeah. um, I was like, oh no. So when I learned the ropes, I was like, you could be in trouble here. And so I had to sort all this out and I absolutely loved it. So I had found myself in this position where uh, I was enjoying the dispensing part of it and learning all about optics mm -hmm. and I was getting to do the business part of it. So it was a, it was a perfect marriage. For was me. it a, was it a low end store, low end optical or? Uh... Back then they were all low end. There wasn't high end. Uh, the, oh, really? Yeah, okay. merchandise was dictated by very few companies. They were all large companies. And so any store you went into pretty much would carry those brands. It just was not there yet. It wasn't until about 1989 that um, 
these these high-end lines started to come on the scene. And I'm sure everybody's heard of Oliver Peoples. And that literally was one of the first lines that started the pivot or the turning point in, in this industry. You know, I've never heard of that. And like you said, it's funny. Everybody probably heard of this. And I bet you everyone who's listening to this never heard of it unless they're an optician. Okay. It was, it was a, a fashion <laughs> phenomenon. They came up with clip-on sunglasses. I mean, this, this was like a product that was just sought everywhere. I will be shocked if some of your listeners have not worn Oliver Peoples at some point in their life. I'm sure I have. Okay. I just didn't know what they were. All right. I'm sorry. But I know I had uh, several pairs of clip-on sunglasses. Okay. There you go. All right. <laughs> that sounds great. So, so that was – so glasses were functional up until then. They weren't fashion, if you will. Yes, okay. very much so. When did Elton John start? Because he was the first guy that I remember, entertainer-wise, that really made eyeglasses sort of something you talked about. Yeah, so, you know, he was obviously wearing eyeglasses, but it wouldn't have been until probably the early 90s when eyeglasses were starting to become much more fashionable. In fact, he used to buy eyewear from a company in L.A., called LAI Works. Okay. Uh, he also did a collaboration in the early 90s with Oliver Peoples for his Elton John Foundation. And so this is when it really started taking off. I see. Um, okay. That it became super fashionable. So here you are in this little store with this person. Mm-hmm. You did that from what, 1980 what? what when you so started, started there in 87. Uh, we ended up getting married Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> we got married. Um, so he fell in love with the, from the, with the young lady who kept him out of jail because he, well, he filed I, the I mean, 940s. Maybe he was like, I got I to tie her up, right? <laughs> um, so um, that was when we had the one store in Peachtree Center. And then we were approached by I, – I got my license. So uh, within two years, I was a licensed optician. And so that meant I could practice on my own. I didn't have to work under him anymore. And so um, we were approached by Phipps Plaza, who had just done a major renovation. Mm -hmm. And they were looking for local talent. They didn't want chains in there because Phipps was always a little more unique and high end. Yeah. And so we were approached to see if we would be interested in it. Um, and my husband at the time really, I don't think was that interested in it, but I was. And his surname was Sally. That's where the Sally came from. That's yeah. where it comes from. Okay. And yeah. that's S-A-L-L-E. Correct. Right. Okay. And so that we ended up opening uh, in Phipps. I was pregnant with my first child when I negotiated that lease. Um, and so that we opened in 93. Okay. It opened for business in 93. And that really was the first foray, if you want to talk about high end. So between that 87 and 93, the industry had pivoted to the point that we'd, I, I already recognized that I couldn't compete with the big chains, uh, didn't have the marketing budget. So how was I going to compete in this arena? And that's kind of how the decision morphed is to go more into high end to follow these brands that were not easily recognizable or that not everybody was selling them. 
And so I had to start going to trade shows to, to meet with people and try and find brands that were a little more exclusive um, and would offer something completely different that you could get in your average optometrist office or big box retailer. Who were these these big these new brands that were coming out that were fashionable brands, fashion brands, if you will? Who they they probably were trying to sell into mass distribution to get into those big box stores and everything else. They you know no. how did they they weren't okay no what they, they had trying? a different approach. It was almost like it was almost at the same time that these manufacturers realized this is the market we need to go because. The big box, all they wanted was discount, discount, discount. And a lot of these eyeglasses were not, they were being manufactured with such um, precision and such quality materials that you couldn't possibly discount them enough. Uh, they were more of an artisan piece. So, you know, back then it was uh, brands called Matsuda. Right. Um, right? And for the, at the time, extremely expensive. Uh, I think we were selling them for $350 back then, and it was like, oh, nothing sells for $350 in our But from industry. a purchasing standpoint, they also had, they were also many multiples higher in cost to the retailer, weren't they? Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, it was, I, you know, I'd have to think very hard. It would keep me awake at night, quite honestly, uh, investing this much money. And the other shift was the big box retailers would come to you or, or uh, wholesalers would come and say, you only need to buy five or six pieces and we'll give you terms. The, the new brands would say, we're a new brand. You have to buy in 25 pieces and there are no terms. And so it really became you a, you had to become a much more astute buyer. You had to know your market. You had to have your customer in mind. Yeah. So here you are, you were working with now who's your husband, right? Mm -hmm. uh, at Peachtree Center. Is that where you said you were? Yep. Okay. In this store that was in effect a single store, low end branded, low end market store, right? I mean, so, um, do you remember what the inventory that you had there cost in that store way back when? At the very peak, um, about $60,000. In total inventory, right. Mm -hmm. So then you go over to Phipps Plaza and you're going to open up this new store and you decide after talking to them and what they're interested in that you're going to go high end. You're going to do this fashion brand stuff, right, in 1993. Yeah. So what was the inventory in that store, which was probably about, was it about the same footprint, square feet and all that? No, we went from 450 square feet to about 900. Okay, so you doubled the square footage. So uh, what was the, so how much, what was the cost of the inventory, if you can remember back then? It was over around 200,000. And, and not just because we put in a tremendous, uh, you know, amount of product. It was the caliber of product. We became a Cartier retailer. And That's Cartier, what I mean. That's what I'm yeah. trying to get at here. Is so to it's say, a luxury line. Yeah, so all of a sudden, I, my, my inventory cost, the amount of money I have tied up, is 3x 
right? Mm-hmm. Three times what it was in the low end retail that I was already that I was used to. Well, when you went to, to your so was it your idea or your husband's idea at the time to go high end? Mine. Okay. Um, how did you convince him? How did you convince him to do that? Because it's like, wait a minute, you know, I'm not really good at this business stuff, but I'm good enough to know <laughs> yeah. that this could put us out of business. You know, it was a leap of faith and uh, the writing was on the wall. There were too many of the people that that we had known in the industry that had stayed status quo, that were losing their market share. The business was changing. You either you either changed or you'd be gobbled up. Well, yeah, we had already had a large uh, chain uh, try to open up in Peachtree Center and came to us and said, well, I'm going to put you out of business anyway, so let me just give you $30,000 and go away. And we were like, no. So, you know, we, we saw it coming. And so how well, do you it is. It's sort of like being the corner grocery store when Walmart was coming along, right? You know, is that kind yeah. of a thing. Yeah. Because I yeah. do remember there were big box reaches and they were everywhere. Okay. Yep. So then you retreat into this high end knowing that that's a place they can't go. Yes. Because the business model for the suppliers of the frames and the business models of the buyers, these big box retail, they just don't match at all. No, not Can't at all. Happen. So it was, uh, so all of a sudden small retail, niche retail made sense again if you stayed high end. Yeah, and, and things started to become very exclusive and secretive in the market, which was kind of exciting. <laughs> I remember, I remember you make when- it, You Armani, make it sound sinful the way you say right? that. Okay, I love yeah. that. <laughs> so Armani was launched. And um, Armani, you, you used to have reps that would come into your store and show you product. Armani said, no, there are no reps. You need to come and meet us in a hotel room. And before you come, let me just tell you that our minimum buy-in is X, whatever it was. And it was like, oh, my gosh, All right, I have to go see this product, right? They obviously think so highly of it. Um, and so we went to this hotel and my husband at the time was like, no, no, that's just way too much money. And I said, you know what? We're going to do it. We are going to do it. And we became the highest uh, volume Armani dealer in the Southeast within the next three years. Did you know that the buyers were there or did you just fall in love with the product? The product. You fell in love with the product. Okay. Yeah. Huh. I've always had a good eye for being able to look at a niche or, or what we don't carry and what we need to carry and who I'm not servicing. And obviously in business, you can't be everything to everyone, right? We, we found our niche and this is where we, where we fall. But within that niche, I need to cover all those people. How did you know that? How did you know your customers? Because the customers that you were serving because with your husband. Because I had people coming in Piedmont. constantly. Oh. So, you know, Charlie Paparelli comes in and he says, you know, here's what I want. And I'm like, I don't have anything for a Charlie Paparelli. I see. You know, how do I, how do I get this? I need to find this. He's asking for something specific that I've obviously missed and I haven't covered. And so that's kind of how it built. And that's how we developed these brands. Um, and we very quickly became so well known in our industry. Uh, I didn't have to go out and search them anymore. They came to me. 
Uh, they wanted to be in our store. We were always the first call when they were looking at the Southeast. So it made life a little bit easier. <laughs> wow. So when did you know that, when did you know that it was really working for you? When I got to cash a paycheck. <laughs> How long did that take? I, I would write myself a check uh, every two weeks or whatever, and I'd stash it away. <laughs> um, it looked like it looked like I did well, but I just could never cash any of them. And so um, the, the 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 pivot point was when we did more in a week at Phipps than we were doing in a month at Peachtree Center, hmm. and it happened within the first six months of us. And you never brought those brands, those new brands, into Peachtree Center. You just kept that as a low-end store to serve that office community, in effect, right? We, it, the brands differed slightly. There was some crossover, but okay. yeah, Phipps, Phipps was the springboard, really, for... How much, how much money, how, how far in debt were you, if you will, if I put it that way, or how much money did you have tied up before you felt like you could actually start cashing your, your, your paychecks? Um, well, we, you know, we had debt with our inventory, which I really wasn't worried about. We didn't really have any, we had taken a small loan out for the, um, construction, mm-hmm. um, I want to say we had about a hundred thousand dollars in debt. Okay. And we felt that was manageable, and, and and because we could see the progress each month, and, and the moving of product, that I I really how wasn't. Long it, how long did it actually take for, like, if you start a new retail store like that with a new line, you know, is are there statistics that say? you need to make it by this point or you're out of business or it takes this long to make it, you know, to where you're profitable and things are working. Well, you mean if you want to break it down line by line before you would say that this line's not working? No, 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 no. I'm talking about the business itself. It's I'm transcending lines at this point. Yeah. I, I kind of, you know, we had a six month plan in our head we already knew that uh, Phipps had great foot traffic. And Phipps, even though it doesn't look like a really busy, busy mall, yeah. the people that are in it are shoppers. They, they're not time wasters. They come in, they shop, they leave, right? And so uh, not, unlike Lennox, which I had a store in Lennox several years later, where people just spend all day uh, and yeah, didn't buy a thing. Right. It's just a place to hang out, right? Yeah. 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 So I knew that uh, it was just a matter of getting some exposure and it would take off. I really, I didn't worry about it. I know that sounds crazy, but I, I had the utmost faith that, that this was going to work. How did you know no? You knew. You just had a vision for it. I did. And did you connect pretty easily with these high-end buyers? Mm-hmm. I mean, consumers, I'm talking about that. Very easily. They see, would you walk fell in love with you. You fell in love with the merchandising side. You just love the high end stuff, yeah. and then you fell in love and and really connected with your customers. Yes. Did your husband spend any time in that store? Yeah, he did. Um, you know, he 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 was a great optician, great optician. Um, and so, from the technical aspects, he was he was 
great. Uh, the other parts of it, no, not so good. Uh, but he was a good people person, and so you know we made a good okay. team. Did he have any? Uh, did he have any connection with the customers, or that's just not? You say. No, he did. Um, from a dispensing standpoint, you know, filling the prescriptions, I see. he did. Yeah. Did he have a? Did he have a? Uh, did he have an appreciation for the quality of the products? Um, I think so. I don't think he was ex- as excited about that part of it as I was. Um, you know, I for me to see a line that has launched and to watch it build and to be able to give them feedback. Uh, from a, an end consumer perspective is, is fantastic. I've seen so many lines being launched over the years. Um, and, and luckily enough, because I've been around long enough, people actually would like to hear what my opinion is. And so, you know, if they're really smart, they will talk to key people in the industry and say, here's what we're producing. Now give us some feedback, right? How important is it, how important is it to love to, to for for your six future success in retail, how important is it to really love what you sell? If we're, I, I'm talking high end, okay, high end retailers, yeah, following. yeah, I think it's it's critical. I could not be an optician and be working in a two for ninety nine store, okay. Mm-hmm. I, I don't care how much money I made; it would it would cripple me. <laughs> I, I have to have a love for the product. Uh, I like to think that if you came into my store, I could tell you at least three fabulous things about every brand that I have because I've chosen them based on the fact that they offer something really unique. So how do you do um, that? So then how do you then, <laughs> then going back to Stanton's again in that store is you understood the quality of the, the cream puffs all right, and what you were saying, whatever. So here you have, you're the one working a lot of hours, I would think. You were the person at the front desk when people walked in. You greeted people. You showed them the products and all that excitement came through, uh, which would make you extraordinarily successful. But how do you then get that first really good employee? Mm. I already had that first really good employee, and he is or, he is with me today. Um, is that Bob? He, that's Bob. Well, how did so, you find? Give me the Bob story because I love Bob. Okay, <laughs> I love Bob, and I love Brandon. Is that his name? Brandon. Yep. Yeah, yeah. These are people you've had forever. So, how, yep. tell me the Bob story. Okay, so we were in Peachtree Center. This was before we opened up FIPS, but FIPS was in the pipeline, okay? Or, or it was it was out there, it was being discussed. And so this was 1991. And Bob had worked for Eastern Airlines, which had gone bust. Yeah. And so he had to go back to school and he was going to go into the engineering program, but every day he passed the ophthalmic dispensing classroom. And he got friendly with the teacher and he was like, I think this sounds more interesting than my engineering program. So he switched. And so he came out uh, as a graduate from the DeKalb Tech program in dispensing opticianry. Okay. And we were actually his first job. So Bob. I mean, he just walked uh, in and worked into your store? 
He applied for a position. We, um, back then, you know, we knew a lot of people in the industry, just like we do today, who run ophthalmic labs and that kind of stuff. And when they're uh, in the DeKalb Tech program, they have them placed so they can get little bits of experience throughout the industry. And I think somebody in one of the labs called and said, hey, there's this guy who's coming out of school looking for work. Uh, he seems like a really good guy. He's a mature student because he was in his 30s at that point. <laughs> and um, so he said, would you like to talk to him? And so when we talked to Bob, um, he was interviewing us much more than we were interviewing him. And because back then, you know, everything was going big box, right? So again, he'd have to go work in a, in a superstore uh, and, and run a superstore or whatever. And I think the small aspect of our business appealed to him. Um, I think not being a big box operator had much more allure. And he he chose to come on with us. What kind of, you say he interviewed you, when you say us, you mean you and your husband? Yeah. So what, how did you, what was he, what kind of questions was he asking that made you draw closer to him or, you know, put you sort of uh, on edge a bit? Well, look, we have an industry that is non-standardized. And what I mean by that is some of us are really good opticians. Some of us call ourselves opticians, but are really not opticians. Um, that they may have been fitting shoes two weeks ago, and they're now fitting you in your eyewear. Okay? Yeah. That's, that's a problem with our industry. And uh, it was really important to Bob having dedicated two years that he come out and work somewhere that felt that, dis that the opticianry part of it was critical. We're not just here to sell frames. We're not just here to move product. You know, this is about the people and it's about doing the absolute best job that can be done. And that has been our benchmark all along. I'm a 150% person. If, I do, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to give it 150%. Otherwise, I just don't do it. And so, you know, Bob, that kind of resonated with Bob. Um, and, and I think he kind of, as he says, I found my happy, my happy place. So what, he's, and, what you told him, basically, you satisfied his need. You're saying that we want only excellent expert opticians. We yes. want the best of the best. Yes. And I could tell you, you know, I remember this is something that happened recently. So here Bob was with you for over 30 years when this happened, but I just decided I wanted some reading glasses for, you know, for when I lay in bed. I, I don't need reading glasses to read, but it was just makes it makes it a little easier. He took such care in going through my prescription because of whatever weirdness I have. And those are the best lenses, you know, I ever, and it was just something simple. He could have just kind of done it sure. to do it, right? You know, like, oh, you don't need these. Just buy whatever, you know, from the drugstore or whatever. But they're just fabulous. It's just, I just was so, I so admired him and was impressed by him, by how careful he was to make sure it was just right for me. And yes. that's that ex so I experienced that expert side. And whenever I get lenses from you guys, they're all like that. It's always right, right, right. 
And if it's not, you fix it, you know, but it's, uh, yeah. it's always right. I mean, I'm really, I mean, if anybody, you know, we've got humans involved, so things can go wrong. Yeah. Um, but, um, so that know, was your first employee. That so, was but first. Here you are. Here's the other side of this. So he could be an expert optician. So he's that engineering side or expert side, I call it. How about that other side? Connecting to people who are high-end buyers and the expectations that they have. There's this customer service side. There's also the piece that I love this inventory. You see, he didn't get that in two years of training before he came to you. So how do you develop that? Um, how did that happen? He was kind of in it when the business was turning. Right. Okay. So 91 was when the business was really starting to to turn and product was changing and we were much more involved in being able to pick and choose what we wanted because there was more options. And I think a lot of that, you know, resonated with him, too. Um, I don't think Bob has ever really looked at it as much from the fashion end right. of it as much as function yeah that's just not right. bob you know i know right? i mean you know he wears a white button down shirt every day <laughs> of the world so um but i bet your yeah. brandon the other employee he has the fashion sense brandon can connect with people um quicker faster than almost anybody i've ever witnessed he has great fashion sense and brandon will if we don't have something that somebody wants, he'll make sure he finds a way to get it. So tell me the, tell me how then Brandon came on board and how long ago was that? So Brandon's been with me now for 17 years. And he was a young man. He wasn't married. I think he was 19 when he came on. Huh. No, early 20s, maybe early 20s. Okay. Um, and he was working for a optical department in a warehouse setting, let's say that. Okay. Um, totally disillusioned with it, but loved the feel of it, right? Loved the feel of what it could be, but realized that there's no growth here. This is not what I want to be within this industry. Uh, and so uh, he interviewed with us, and I liked his... Um, his attitude. He was a little cocky. I tell him that all the time. Uh, you know, we had to knock a little bit of Brandon out of him, as I like to say. Uh, but he was just really genuine and really a, a fabulous people person. And I knew that on the back end, I could develop him and develop his optician skills because he was so strong up front. So we kind of, you know, in building. What does that mean he was so strong up front? What do you mean? Up front with people. Oh, his interpersonal skills were so strong. Yes. I see. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And he you know, loved, and then, you must have, and you saw that he loved the business, the optical business. Yeah, we just had to develop him as an optician. He had not had the background that he needed. And okay. so, you know, luckily, again, we are in an apprentice state. And so uh, we, we, I have an apprentice on staff at all times because I want to keep the industry moving. And I want to keep the industry moving in a really good way. Yeah. Because you can imagine with an apprenticeship program, if you've got somebody apprenticing in, under someone that's not that great, they're going to be not that yeah, great. So, so Brandon so, apprenticed under you and Bob. Correct. Probably mostly Bob, I would think. 
Uh, a little bit of both. I think we kind of, of divided and conquered, yeah. Well, he had two really, really great teachers in that mm-hmm. regard. So what? And he's he's a top notch optician. He really is. Yeah, I agree with that. So how do you? So, but when you're starting this business and you're trying to get it out of the ground, you must have had. Uh, well, let me let me stick with Bob and 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 Brandon mm-hmm. for just a moment. Why did they stay so long? I mean, this is retail. I thought retail had like a ridiculous turnover. You know. Even in optical, or am I wrong? In optical, there isn't turnover. No, there is. We don't like to think of it as retail, but the obvious fact is it is because we're in a mall. Yeah. We have such a medical basis to what we do that we have to wear both hats. Right. Okay. Um, and so I think we appeal to, to non-retail people um, because it's it's more of a career path. Um I look, I just worked really hard on on setting an environment whereby even though I made the general rules for the for the business, right? That you know, the foresight into it, the the where we're gonna go this year is is me driven. But they are empowered within that to build it. And I encourage all of my uh, staff to operate as if this is their own business within my business. So how do they get people coming back and asking for them? How do they build their own client base? Because they're, they're commissioned as well. And so, you know, how do, how does a staff member build their client out where people are sending them people and, and they become repeat and they want to see that person. Um, and, and that's, that's always been the drive. And, and I'm, that's funny because the reason I do before I go down there, I usually say, "Is Bob working today?" Not funny, you know. Yeah, that is really something. So then, as you're building this business, you know, how did it all? So it's you and your husband. You bring in Bob, okay? Uh, Brandon came really much later, okay? Yeah. So how did did everybody turn? I I, I don't. I didn't see a lot of when I've been going there for so many years. I'm not, I saw Bob all the time. I didn't see it. I saw some other people. They come and go and all. What makes people? What made those? What made for the that turnover? And uh, how did it continue to work out with you and your husband owning the business and all that? How does all that? Mm. Well, gosh, look, we had turnover in staff just like anybody. Some because we get them in and we realize that there's no amount of training that is going to make them the person we need them to be. And so we just, we end it right there because that's more dangerous to my business than me just saying, oh, but but they're showing up for work every day. Uh, And then we, we tended, because we're a small business, when we did recruit talent, uh, Sometimes it's a challenge to keep them because they want to become a manager or, you know, they have higher aspirations that uh, I just couldn't okay. service them with. You know, how many managers can you have in two stores? So, you know, our, our, as we started our expansion over and we ended up with four stores, that became a little easier. But the challenge in, from that aspect of it was that we actually diluted our, what made us great. We diluted our strength, right? Yeah, and growth so, works against you. Absolutely, yeah. It, it did against me, yes. Um, well, it, would, it then, does. I've heard this story before because it's hard to, it's hard to duplicate the form. It's like, 
I, I heard a, a story about a restaurant that we used to go to. We had a place down in Hilton Head in Sea Pines, and there was a very well-known restaurant there. And uh, the restaurateur was phenomenal, and you just loved going there. And then his brother convinced him to expand. And it was the expansion that killed him. It killed. It didn't work in the new new location, and the old location started to go to pot, you know, and people stopped going there. So it, it's very difficult when you have these personal business, you know. I mean, it's your heart and soul that's making it a success. So yeah, I didn't know you've gotten to four. You got to four stores. Yeah. So you know, we have the original Peachtree Center. We opened Fitz. We opened in Lenox. Um, and then we opened one on Wynwood Parkway. Oh, okay. And uh, Lennox was a nightmare. Um, I mean, we all know what goes on in Lennox today. I, I felt the same way 15 years ago. I think you told um, me that it was such a tremendous uh, loss. Yeah. There. What was it, the, uh, what do you call that when people are shoplifting? Oh, I mean, it, we had to hire more people just to watch people. <laughs> not not to sell. Uh, it just it was not an enjoyable environment. They weren't really the shoppers. There was a lot of browsers, and so it requires more staff just to watch people. It just it was not the same feel. Uh, the Alpharetta store we opened um, based on some promises that never came to fruition um, because of the landlord there. And Did the landlord then promised high end buyers. Is that what the landlord promised? They promised certain clients. Turns out that those clients did not come in. Probably my bad that I didn't see the yeah. sign, you know, but, but, you know, you're in these conversations. And, and a friend of ours who owned a well known restaurant in Buckhead had opened up out there and they were the anchor. And so I had some insight there into what they were doing and yeah. felt that it would be a good pull. This was so many years ago. Winwood Parkway is, is, you know, so much different today. Uh, and then the DOT closed the exit off 400 for, <laughs> I want to say, four, five, six months, right? Uh, so that was unfortunate. Um, and the other thing was when people would come into the, to, to my store in Bucket, and they would be giving me their address and it would come up with an Alpharetta address. I would say to them, now, you know, we have a store in Alpharetta. And they would say, oh, yeah, but we love to come to Buckhead. And I was like, now, if only I'd done the research on that first. <laughs> so the, the, the Lennox store didn't make it, right? You closed that. Then you closed the Windward store. Yes, we closed the Windward. And, and we what, about the the, uh, what about the other store in Peachtree Center? We would have kept that open other than the fact that Peachtree Center changed. That was kind of out, out of our control. Uh, a lot of the people that we served in that store were attorneys and, and accountants and all the, the office buildings upstairs were, were all professional offices. And that had all kind of shifted and moved towards Midtown. And so what was upstairs now was oh, yeah. government offices and they weren't our customer. Yeah. Because you changed the Peachtree Center store to be high-end too, right? Higher, yes. Higher-end. Yes. Okay, I see. Yeah. So you wound up in the end with the one location. Yeah, it was a conscious decision not to... not to. How much, to how much between the Lenox Square store and the, the store up in Alpharetta, okay, how much, how much do you think that that cost you in total? Not to bring up some... 
bad memories. Quarter of a million? Yeah. Because I just say that because it just gives people an idea. These are the, this is what you're risking when you expand, okay? Well, and we all, but we all do that, okay? And when it works, it's great. But when it doesn't, you do pay a price. But the uh, upside on it is still greater than the quarter million. <laughs> value It is. And, and we had a little bit of luck along the way in that we had, before we opened at Lennox, we actually signed a lease uh, down where now the shops of Buckhead is. Okay. Right. So before all that changed, uh, we were approached by a customer of ours who who owned property down there, and he said, "You know, you should come and open up a store here." And we we were we were in it. We had signed the lease, uh, and we're about to start the development of the project. And he came to us and said, "Hey, you know, I've been approached by this Italian gelato company, and they want your space." And I said but it's our space. We've already signed on it. I don't understand. And he said, no, 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 no. They want this space so bad. They're willing to pay you money to go away. And I said, well, how much are they willing to pay us? And he said, $75,000. And I said, and you'll let me out of the lease. And he said, Wendy, you're a good friend of mine. Of course, if it's better for you, take the money and go. And so we took the (laughs) (laughs) $75,000. Well, there you and go. we opened up Lennox. So Lennox wasn't as expensive as it could have been, right? Because we, we offset it. Oh, that's really good. That's really good. So then, now what about this part about being a husband and wife in business? How does that progress? I always, uh, I see that from time to time in the technology sector, okay? And I, and I, and I see the difficulties with it, you know? It's easy to start that way. You know, and uh, because you got two people, you trust each other, both completely bought into the thing. But then life sort of develops beyond that, right? Yeah. You get a little older, you have different interests a little bit, your kids are growing up, you know, it's it's more complex versus, oh, yeah, we're married, we're always on this, it's all great. How does yeah. that progress? How did that? Well, ended up in divorce for me. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Um, but, but not just because of the business. I mean, I, I think, as you say, you know, sometimes you go off in, in, yeah. in different paths. I was very much behind the business and, and, and the developing and wanting it, you know, to, to take FIPS to, to the next level. Uh, and, and he really wasn't that interested in it. So for a period of time, he kind of stepped back from the business anyway. I see. So it was very logical uh, when we did end up splitting up. Well, when I, he steps back from the business, mm-hmm. him being, he was an optometrist, right? Optician. Optician is what I meant. Okay, optician. Is uh, where does he go? When you say well, he steps back. He didn't do anything. Once we, he, he was actually running the Lennox location once we had Lennox up. I see. Okay. Um, and so he went over there. Uh, and so we weren't working together daily. Uh, I did all the administration and the, and the business aspects yeah. of the business anyway. He was in Lennox. And, and towards the end of it, he was kind of working part time there anyway. Um, and so it was just a decision that when we closed Lennox, um, that, you know, I, I really didn't need him to come over to Phipps. Phipps was a well-oiled machine at that point. Yeah, but what you're telling me though is he lost, he lost his love for the business. Yeah, I never felt that with you, but that yeah. happens. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It just happens sometimes. You just go like, you know, I kind of had enough of this. That's why a lot of people just sort of sell, like you say. You know, it's just time for me to get out and do something else. You know, 
Yeah, no, I think that's true. I think that's a first statement. And I think, you know, when we did come to to separate, obviously you have to have the uncomfortable conversations of, well, what do you do with the business, right? Yeah. Uh, and his point was, if you don't want it, I will sell it. Ah, there you go. So that's what I'm talking about. So you yeah. said, but I do want it. But I do want it. So then you get this other issue. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Half of it's wow. mine, right? You know. How do you deal with how did you how do you wind up dealing with that difficult issue in a family-owned business? Yeah, it's look, it's not easy. Um, I think the business had a certain value prior to me joining it, yeah. which we were able to establish. I and see. In all fairness, that was his. Um, and uh, you know, we had the big house in Buckhead that everybody thinks they want. You take the house, I take the business, you know? Uh, and and it, it, that's essentially what it kind of came down to is we did that's an evaluation. Great. Okay, you but you were able to work it out and, yeah. and it did work out. So then you wound up owning the 100% of the business. And yes. how long ago was that? 2007. Okay. So you also had children. Mm-hmm. What do you have? Did you say you had... I have a 28-year-old and a 26-year-old daughter. Okay. Did they must have done? They must have worked in that in the business at some point. Well, they they used to come in when they were kids and wash all the mirrors for me and that kind of thing. <laughs> um, and and I always had conversations with them as they got older. Do you, do you have an ambition to come in yeah, and do right. it? Right. Uh, my eldest one, I actually tried to talk her into going to optometry school because uh, she had more of a science bent. And I'm like, yeah. come on, you know. Um, and, and she's like, Mom, I just I do not want to work for you. I do not want to. Uh, OK, fine. And so she goes off and does her own thing. Yeah. Uh, funnily enough, today she is an apprentice optician in the store. In your store? Yes, she is. And she is, so she came in, she was going to go to PA school and she was working for uh, an orthopedic surgeon to get her hours to go to PA school. Yeah. Started having some health issues and she needed to cut back. And I said, why don't you come work for me? Uh, Flexible hours, do what you need to do until we get you on the right path. And so she came and she's, she's a little bit like me, which is probably why we butt heads sometimes. Um, but she started taking over things in the office and the staff, Bob and Brandon came to me and said, wow, she's really good. Like, can we keep her? <laughs> and so we started having the conversations again, Nicola, is this something you think you would like to do? And finally she said, I, I think it really is. Now, I had a dilemma at this point because I was already talking to people to sell my business. Right. That's where I was going. Okay, good. All right. So what do you, well, how do you deal with the dilemma? Now, these are people who, by the way, you talked about early on when we first started about testing the water just to see what the process was like. So you put yourself up for sale in that sense, okay, even though your intention was not to sell but to get information. Now you had somebody probably, they probably approached you. Is that what happened? Well, they initially, even when I went through the test, they approached me. Oh, they did? Uh, Okay. I've never positioned the business for sale. Uh, I see. This is too small an industry and, you know, a little bit of blood. Oh, that's good. 
And so um, when the opportunity came to me, I actually went through the exercise with two different companies to see how these two different people uh, valued the business, knowing that I you know, would not be willing to sell. Um, but it was a fantastic exercise. But with, when it pertains to my daughter, I had said to her, look, I don't want you to think that you're coming into this business so that you can take it over because I don't believe in that. Right. I if I get a sale for this business and it's something I cannot turn down, I will be making that decision. Doesn't mean I can't help you set up a business. Well, why, you, why did you say do. I don't believe in that? Why don't you believe in that? Most family owners believe in that. That's odd for you to come down so hard on it. I don't know one optician or optometrist that has left it to the next generation that has done any service to the business. Ah, so okay. it's from my own personal history. So the business, the business was important. To yes. the point you wanted to make sure it continued to be a premier uh, mm -hmm. retail optician. Okay. And you and that's threatened by a family taking over. That's true, I think, in, in, in anything because it it's just doesn't have the soul of the founder, you know, kind of a deal. Yeah. Yeah, and, and not that she wouldn't do a fun done. Well, then what happened? So somebody approached you again. Yeah, so um, it was during the pandemic. We closed down March 17th um, and just closed. And a friend of mine who had sold to a group um, from Canada, he has 12 stores in Florida. And he called me and said, are you interested in selling? And I said, well, you know, probably not a great time to sell a business when you're shut. <laughs> and so, and he said, no, look, he said, these guys, they're not looking for a, for a fire sale, right? They, that's not the way they're doing it. They're using this downtime to source where they want to go, which I thought was quite smart. Yeah. And um, I said, well, you know, I'm always willing to talk. And so I went through the motion with, with these people and good company. And uh, we actually came to terms. And uh, in the, they let their exclusivity agreement run out because I went back and asked for more money uh, when I saw what my sales were in 2020. Okay. So 2020 was an enormous year for us. And so I went to them and I said, I have based this deal on where I was up to now. And you did penalize me for being closed and lost revenue first part of 2020, but I, I need more money. And so they said, well, we don't disagree, but we'd like to watch it for another six months. Okay. So the exclusivity ran out. A friend of mine who was heading up a group based on the West Coast came to me and said, will you talk to us? And I said, oh, my gosh, okay, fine. I already had all my numbers pulled together, so it yeah. wouldn't have been as hard work. And I said, I, I don't think you understand my business, so I'm just going to tell you up front that I don't think it would be a good fit because um, I knew what they'd previously been buying. But, again, I went through it because it's a good exercise. And um, that one I turned down. So I had the first company that was still on hold I could go back to if I wanted to. A third company came to me and said, "Before we hear that there are rumblings out there, and before you make a decision, we would love to talk to you. 
And so the CEO flew, flew down to Atlanta and we had lunch and he impressed me within, you know, the two hours that we sat talking together. And I felt that this company had more of an idea of direction than the first one. And so I said, fine, let's start talking. Yeah, and but they also understood you better and your business better is what probably is yes. what gave you that comfort. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly right. It wasn't just an acquisition. There was a strategy behind their acquisition. Uh, they could tell me the why that they wanted my business. What was much. the strategy that impressed you? Um, to become the premier luxury eyewear group ah. in the U.S. They already had a foundation in, in that, retail. In retail. I see. They already had a foundation. I knew, uh, I had known of their company for many years. Uh, they also had a wholesale aspect to their company, and I had actually purchased frames from them okay. over years. So I had a little more knowledge with them, where the first group had some luxury, mostly in Canada, and then the, the group in Florida. But then they had a large mid-price chain, and then they had a large lower price chain and they were actually publicly traded and so i just didn't get a sense that they had the same luxury direction yeah right that makes sense i think they'd be pulled in too well, many you got closer to you know the term sheet comes in okay mm -hmm. and you're sitting with the term sheet and it's the terms you agreed to there's no surprises in it and it has a space for your signature Okay, what what were you thinking? What was the battle in your mind that went on that said, ah, man, it, this is this is the moment. Thirty four years and nine months. All of my life is in this thing. This is the moment. Pen in hand. What were you thinking? Oh gosh, I mean it's. There's so many things that go through. One, am I doing a disservice to my daughter by not, you know, continuing this with something that she can take over? <laughs> uh, and then I looked at it from a perspective of, well, how silly. With the amount of money I'm getting, I could give her X number of dollars and she could go set herself up. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it's, you know, I'm 55. Am I too young to be doing this? Uh, I've got I've got some life left in me, <laughs> and, and and then you know the other side of it is you know, I've, I'm always a goal setter, and so I've always set myself goal after goal after goal, and I'm thinking to myself, have I met my goals? Have I really like have I maxed this out to the point that I'm saying, okay, I can't, I, I just can't do this any better. So now I want to cash out. And that was the biggest point for me. And so when I was negotiating with them, I had to have a financial tie-in for a period of time after I sold because I, I got to have those goals. And I, I, I wanted to know that when I truly reached that pinnacle and I became the largest grossing independent eyewear store in the country, wow, that it would be me that had done it. Huh. Does that make sense? Yeah. And you achieved that. Yes, I did. Congratulations. That is phenomenal. Thank you. Yeah. 
So, so that was my goal, right? That that was yeah. So that's I, I the got, big goal. got to reach my goal, financially be rewarded for it, uh, but have the satisfaction that I got it. And it was almost when I got to that, I could almost take a deep breath and went, you yeah. know, I did it. There's that old term. What is it? The BHAG, the big hairy audacious goal. Well, you certainly yeah. seem to have achieved that for sure. That is really yeah. fantastic. Man, I'm proud of you. And I was and I'm proud of being a customer and to be a part of that whole thing. You know, but it is uh that's pretty that's pretty exciting, that's all I could say. And I'm sure your daughter was excited for you. Oh you know, even in the midst of absolutely yeah. Gotta be proud um, of mom. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I think, you know, coming from a, a family that, that has split up and, and, and where the business was and, you know, now dad's out of it and that kind of stuff, um, it, it was a little uh, difficult in because, quite honestly, once he was out of it, I was able to make decisions that I had been held back on previously. And so the business went because from he was here more to here. conservative than you were. More conservative, uh, you know. We were still on major decisions, having to have co-approval, if you will. I see. Yeah. Um, and and so you know that was a struggle because I, I always had a very strong vision of how we're going to get to the next goal. And so I think it was maybe a little disconcerting for the kids initially when they could see that the business was going from here to here all of a sudden. Uh, but I think as they've gotten older and they've matured, they can give me credit for it. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, though, those those being together, you were on the same page kind of going into the business. But what happened is you you kept uh, you had a real vision and it never stayed as a shared vision, you know, so. And so what your vision, you're, you're getting more and more bought in, more and more excited about the business. And if if I'm here. You know, then I'm, oh, how do you do it? If I'm here, if I'm below, then I'm not as excited about the business. And if I'm not excited about the business, I am just generally more conservative about it. I don't want to. Do, so there's this mismatch, and that's how you wind up with uh, you either give into it and sell because that's all you can do or and start something new. Or you say, no, you need to kind of go away because I love it too much. Let me just run with it and I'll give up pretty much whatever's fair. Maybe even what's unfair to to kind of take it forward, because it's it's what I want, you know. I yeah. see it, and that's uh, th I think that was a pretty that's a pretty good analysis of what you've kind of went through. Mm -hmm. But then you wind up with, okay, so I've 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 achieved this big goal that I never thought was even possible, and there here I am, and now I'm going to work for somebody else. Usually, the people I buy usually are like, we'll never see her after, you know, three months, you know, but you've been with them for a little bit, this new buyer. Yeah. You, know, you like their strategy, I know that, but, you know, finding a position for someone that's been a solo owner, practitioner, how does, how, tell me about that transition and how that's worked out for you. Yeah, you know, look, I'm not going to uh, say that it was a super easy transition because when you're a decision maker, uh, you know, I would get up in the morning, I look myself in the mirror. Hey, Wendy, does that seem like a good idea? Yeah, Wendy, it sounds great. Let's do it. Well, more importantly, now, it's your vision. This isn't your yeah. vision anymore. It's not your company. No, okay. it's not. <laughs> but even when it is my vision, or if it's my strategy, having to run it through two or three people yeah. is 
uh, I'm not a very, I'm a type A, so I'm like, <laughs> okay, how long is this going to take? Um, so there's that part of it. Uh, but it's been a good fit. I, you know, I now do the merchandising for the entire group. And as we acquire more locations that are similar locations to me, uh, I'm a good sounding board for these people coming in, right? And um, we just acquired a group in D.C. who was a good friend of mine, uh, have the utmost respect for him. And so now you we're working said it's together. A sm- it's a small industry in that regard. Everybody does know each other. Did you hear me? No, are you froze? Sorry, Charlie. I said, I said it's a small, which proves it's a small industry that everybody does know each other. Still can't hear me. No, nope, I'm sorry. I wonder why I you can't. It's hear my me. my web. All Try right. it again. I said, can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. I said it's a small industry. When you talked about Washington, you knew those people. It's a small industry. Everybody does know each other. Especially in our end of the industry, the high-end yeah. retailers. You mean? Yes. Yeah. We 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 know each other. It's it's. Well, um, you go to all the shows and you're all hanging around with the high-end booths, right? You know that. that have all that, right? Yeah. That's and that's the good end of our industry too. Yeah. You know, we work we work with peers all all, all over and. Um, so you're yeah, saying that you were talking about, though, is you're helping them. You're, so you're enjoying your work because you're still meeting, not maybe in hotel rooms to meet those high-end uh, uh, manufacturers, okay, but vendors, but you're meeting with them, which you enjoy them, okay, and doing that merchandising because you have still a love for high-end eyeglasses, okay, and those products. And then now you have this other piece, which is to represent them and connecting them with some of your friends and talking about how it's kind of worked out and what, what the steps might be for them to exit their business. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I made a, a good choice. Uh, I'm comfortable with my decision. Yeah. Uh, and for however many years I have left in this industry, I, you know, that's good. Uh, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, sometimes it is. change is good, right? Oh, I think sometimes it gives you a little more uh, enthusiasm. It's the same thing that I used to feel when I would go to trade shows. I would dread going to the trade shows. But after three days with my peers and seeing new product and hearing you know, their struggles, their successes, you kind of come back recharged and ready to hit it again. Yeah, right. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's it's nice. I'm enjoying it. I remember always walking, and when I used to go to trade shows for my industries and stuff, I'd walk out with two feelings. One is, you know, I'm not I'm not the worst. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm like I'm pretty smart, and I'm and I'm competitive. You know, it's a good thing. But man, these guys seem to be like they're killing it. I wonder if I could catch them. You know, so it kind of gives you that new breath of of motivation, if you will, you know, that new competitiveness, but a good piece of confidence that you didn't have before. Plus you enjoy the people that you're working with, you know, that you're in the industry with, if you will. And which makes you feel like, yeah, I am in the right place. This is a good thing. So you've dedicated your life to this industry and you've certainly contributed greatly to it, have moving into this high end, but you must have a tremendous uh, reputation with these high end vendors. Everybody must know Wendy Sally. <laughs> you know what's funny is you don't see that, but uh, I remember the CEO of the company that I sold to, 
uh, he came to me uh, and he said, I've done my homework on you. And, and I said, oh, okay. And, uh, and he said, you are extremely well-respected. You are extremely well-known. He said, everybody knows you. And, and I, I was kind of like, yeah, but I've been doing this for 34 years, so of course they know me, right? You know, I've been around. I'm a dinosaur. Um, but no, the, the, look, there's a lot to it. I've been successful for a long period of time, and uh, I've watched a lot of people come up in this industry, and I've given them a lot of help. Um, I always make myself available to anybody that is opening stores. And, I, and you know, I meet these people where, where they may be working with other people at one point. And they'll say to me, Wendy, I'm opening my own store. Can I run a few things by you? Yeah. And I am always open. Always. What do you think, you know, you, you do, you have been very successful and you do have a great reputation. What do you think of the, what are those elements that made you successful as you look back? You know, there's never like 10. It's usually like these, these, just these three things that really made it all work as I look back. Gosh, you know, I'm tenacious. I, 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 I don't give up easily. Um, I'm a good people person in general. I, I read people very well. Um, well, and I've, ne- I've never been, yeah, yeah I, and I've never been afraid of hard work, <laughs> ever. I, you know, people used to say, oh, it must be great owning your own business. You can set your own schedule and, you know, take time off whenever you want. And I'm like, are you serious? I mean, this is a top-down thing. I work more than any of my staff. And, and you know, I really believe you set the tone. Uh, and, and I've always done you know, that. Lee Iacocca. So. You remember Lee Iacocca? Do you remember that name or you don't know yeah, that name? He was the inventor. I do. He was the he was the the manager in charge of uh, when the Mustang was invented. Okay, back in the sixty two or sixty three, and uh, he then took over Chrysler right with uh, and and got the government to loan money to Chrysler to uh, that was the first government guaranteed loans. And he, I wrote his book. He was a fellow Italian, and every, he was so famous and everything. And I remember reading his bo- book, and the name of the book was Iacocca. And he made that statement. That's the only thing I took away from that book was this one, li- this one line. And I was a general manager of a technology company at the time. And he said, the speed of the boss is the speed of the team. I, did you hear me? Say that again. The speed of the boss is the speed miss- of the team. Still can't hear it. The speed of the boss is the speed of the team, and that's what you're—that's what you're saying. I, I I agree with that. Yeah, and it—I uh, yeah. see it all the time. You can't be this absentee owner expecting everybody to work well and to and to maintain high quality and everything. You got to be there. You got to set the pace, and everybody will kind of keep the pace with you. And every once in a while, you get somebody who passes you. You know, and you go like, oh, that's the next person to kind of make this thing go, you know? It's, uh, yeah. it is. It's really interesting that you do that. But the no, other it's thing important. that you have even, even is, if I'm- the other thing that you have is you just have such tremendous confidence. I could just feel it from you. Oh. Yeah. You know that you are great with people and all that, but I never felt a sense of anxiousness or worry or ever from you and all. It's sort of like, 
yeah, this is going to work. I got good customers. I got great products. I got a nice location. I've got great people I'm working with. I mean, this is great. You know, <laughs> that was something that you had. And optimism, yeah. maybe. <laughs> maybe I just hide it well. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> it was really great. Look, this is good. I mean, there's always times when, when you doubt yourself, right? You question yourself. But, but those times for me have been very few and far between. Hmm. And, and I, I feel, uh, you know, very lucky to have gotten to the point that I, that I have with my business. It's always been a very personal goal, not, not just about the money. It, 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 it's so much more um, about what I've built, right, yeah. and, and taking pride in it because I have invested my entire work life in it. Think back. Give me, give me one last question I have is to give me an analysis. This is for female entrepreneurs, Okay. Give me an analysis of where you were when you grew up and the opportunities, where you were when you graduated for college and where you were. You want to forget that. Where you were when you kind of got out of college. Let's start there because it's more personal for you. Where you were when you were out of college and the opportunities for females then. Where you were when you, when you finally started uh, Sally Opticians, and then where you are now. So those are three sort of different environments that female and so female entrepreneurs to see where they where it all came from. You've covered those three decades. I think it would be interesting to people, to female entrepreneurs, to hear your analysis there. You know, yeah, that's it. That's an interesting one. I, I don't know that I ever thought that I was at a disadvantage because I was a female. Hmm. I've never operated from a female brain. Uh, I, I recognized when I was younger that, for example, when I went to uh, A-level college right after high school in England. You, you do two years of study before you go on to university. Uh -huh. And all the girls took typing courses. And I remember thinking to myself, now this was before computers, right? Yeah. So it was like I typing for computers. Uh, because you'll become a secretary. I mean, that's what it's right? about. Yeah, yeah. And that, it really kind of irritated me. <laughs> Actually, it irritated me. Uh, but I did it, and I'm like, okay, we move on. But so I never really thought about myself the, as being disadvantaged. I, I that must I don't mean know. you never experienced it either. Um, no. But look, I've been in. I've been doing it for myself. So you know, yes, you know, the one company that I worked for uh, in England was a little, oh, you know, they're they're women, they're part timers, they've got kids, you know, just put them in a uniform and just have them do the, yeah, yeah a, a little bit, okay. It was a male dominated company at the top, and you didn't see anybody with any um, authority until a management level on on a store. Um, so yeah, if I look back, there was that, but it, it never ever has clouded what I've negotiating done or that how I've moved forward. How about when you were negotiating that lease with Phipps? It wasn't your husband negotiating with it. You were negotiating with Phipps. How did they treat you? 
Did they see you as a female or did they just see you as a business person they were negotiating a lease with? I think they saw me uh, as just a business person. I, I can tell you that when I had to renegotiate my lease after 10 years, yeah. the leasing agent at that point was a female. And she said to me, you have a bit of a reputation. <laughs> and I said, really? And she said, yes. She said, you're, you're known to be no nonsense. Oh. Right, And I said, so is that a good thing? Because, you know, women can be given the B word, right? <laughs> if you're a man, you're a really good negotiator. But if you're a woman, you're a, a whatever. Yeah, right. And she said, no. She said, I think it's fantastic. But that was coming from another woman. But again, I, I could care less what anybody thought. I've always known that I'm a reasonable person. Uh-huh. And I'm not asking for anything more than anybody else would. And, and well, so you didn't go even, in. So that's the that's other part of this. Happening. I think it's important is you don't go into something thinking that you're going to be discriminated against. And even if you might be, you don't see it because it doesn't even make sense to you. So you just kind of go straight through it. You can think of me maybe that way, yeah. but I don't even think about you thinking about me that way. That's my point. Then you get into now, you think about starting a business now, like if it's your daughter or whatever, she's going to start her own business. How much has the environment changed for women entrepreneurs now? Oh, tremendously. (laughs) And I I think uh, in in our industry especially, our industry is is dominated by women. Optometry is (laughs) dominated by women. Wow. Um, it's very interesting within the last 10 years, huge shift. Look, I think women have talents that men don't. Yeah. Uh, I think we're highly intuitive. Uh, you know, my husband, my, my new husband likes to say, you know, women rule the world. Men just don't know it yet. And, uh, you know, <laughs> but, but you he's know, surrounded by women. So he has I'll to leave say you that. with this though. you couldn't have done it without Bob, okay? <laughs> Absolutely. I love he is my, uh, He's what I call my, my work husband. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Yeah. Well, Wendy, this has been fabulous. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know you're up in New York and you're in the offices there and you got work to do and people to see, but, but uh, I can't thank you enough. This has been wonderful. Oh, thank you. I have enjoyed it. You know, you're always one of my favorites anyway, so it's been a pleasure. (laughs) All right. I'll close this out and then I'll say goodbye to you. Okay. Thanks for attending the Charlie Paparelli show. This was one of my favorite interviews and I'm sure you'll, you'll pick up a lot from this on uh, how to be successful as an entrepreneur. And I hope these females are actually watching this because uh, Wendy was there when. So take care and please sign up at paparelli.com. And we'll see you next time.